0: On ABC Radio,
1: this is the big fish
0: with Scott
2: Levine. program is called The Big Fish, as you all know. But I was thinking about it. We don't really talk about big fish all that often on The Big Fish. We talk about the vibe and the social aspect of fishing and more inclusion. A lot of talk about habitat restoration, communing with nature. And, and as you fish, the longer you fish, the more it seems to be about the, the holistic experience uh, rather than numbers a numbers game. But uh, we're going to talk about big fish with Greg French because there are some fish that can be fully grown and can be eight centimetres long. That same fish in the right environment can be 80 centimetres long. And it's a fascinating topic of discussion. Greg French has written plenty of books about the Salmonids of the world and particularly his part of the world, Tasmania, where they get some really big ones. Come on brown
3: trout, over 39 pounds taken out of the um, Tyena River. That's not actually been officially recognised as a record and there's, you know, being the Tyena River and it's got fish farms on it um, there's always the chance that it's been feeding on fish pellets or even that it's an escape or something like that. Um, But it's a big fish, and prior to that, the biggest fish caught in Tasmania would have been a 28 and something pound fish taken back in 1883 by Governor Hamilton from the Huon River. Um, but you know, anything over 20 pounds is a big fish.
2: Now, the Tyena runs down into the Derwent, which runs down into uh, the estuary at Hobart, as we all know, it's a very famous river. The Derwent River itself is a monstrous river i mean i don't know if there's a bigger cold water stream anywhere in australia is there i mean down below those rapids there that, that, that you know midway up it's it's huge
0: it is
3: all the way down through hobart um, and the bottom oh golly i don't know maybe 30 odd kilometers of it is tidal um and that so has you know really really big sea trout run in it as well, and of course some of those fish get really, really big. Um, but the whole thing about size is, is in particular with the trout, so it's really interesting because at a very basic level, um, size is determined by the amount of food and the amount of competition. So to put it simply, if you've got say a lake in the Western Lakes that has hardly any recruitment, natural recruitment, so it's just got a few fish get up into the little lake in flood time. Um, but maybe it's got big marshes and you know, lots and lots of, lots of food. Are, um, those fish can go really big. They'll, they'll get up to 20 pounds really easily. But the flip side of that is that if you've got a lake with a, um, an in-stream lake perhaps with giant river flowing in and flowing out, the lake itself is small, heaps of spawning, then you end up with a big population of relatively small fish. Um, But I should say that even though environment is the main contributing factor, there's a huge genetic component involved in this. Um, And you were just talking then about how, you know, a fish that lives in a, a small stream placed in a different environment might be able to grow into a much bigger fish. The classic case of that is... Um, the Lahontan cut trouts in Nevada, there's a lake there called Pyramid Lake. And Pyramid Lake's a desert lake. It's fed by a big river, the Truckee, that comes down off the um, Sierra Nevada, and then it flows out into the desert, hits this lake. The water evaporates at a quicker rate than it runs in, so there's no outflow to the lake. Um, and over thousands of years, the lake's got lower and lower and lower and lower. But historically... This lake had fish, uh, cutthroat trout in it that averaged over 20 pounds in the spawning runs. Now, cutthroat trout aren't measured for their size. You know, a big cutthroat trout is two or three pounds. So they have a, have a lake that had fish with 20 pounders in it. And the biggest of them were over 60 pounds. But they used to harvest these fish to feed um, the gold miners in California. Um, but then what happened was that they converted um, the river for irrigation and suddenly this morning run collapsed and the fish basically became extinct. They tried stocking the lake with, with other fish like rainbow trout, but it's a, a very alkaline lake because of this whole desiccating thing that happens in the desert. And eventually they found another popular, anyway, the rainbow trout died just they just can't handle this alkaline water. Um, they eventually found another lake nearby um, that had the Cup Cups out in it and they put fish from that lake back into Pyramid Lake and they grew reasonably well but they never got to the 20 pound size. You know, a 3 or 4 pound fish was a good fish, a 10 pound fish was a giant fish. At the time they thought, you know, exactly the same genetic stock, not growing the same rate. But There's a famous ecologist, Dr. Benke, um, and he theorised way back in the the 70s that Pyramid Lake back in the 1860s was the first lake, I think, in the US to have a chow patchery on it. And he theorised that back in that time when they were distributing chow willy-nilly and didn't know much about genetics, um, some of these fish from Pyramid Lake would have been put in small streams, probably quite far away from the lake as well, up in the hills. And he theorised that there's probably a population up there in a little creek, maybe the fish only grow six inches long, but the genetic traits would still be there. And if you ever found one of those creeks and took those little fish and put them back into Pyramid the mid-lake, they would grow to 20 pounds again. Um, At the time, he was considered to be bonkers. <laughs> Yes. Uh, cut a long story short, um, in the 2000s, uh, one of his students did actually find one of these creeks. Um, Bob looked at the the fish and said, yep, yeah, they couldn't be native to that particular area. They must have come from Pyramid Lake. The geneticist looked at them and said, no, nah, there's no difference between, you know, these are hot trout and the hot and trout that we've got from the other little lake. Um, Benke disagreed. There was a problem in stocking the lake because the... Um, local pay- people make good money by selling fishing licenses and they didn't want anything to go wrong with it. But eventually, they trialled it. And sure enough, these little six-inch-long fish from Pilot Creek, from Pilot Peak, um, ended up growing to 20 pounds. I've been there and fished for them. They're an amazing... So
2: fish that was well all, as well as, all about them. genetics. The Lahontan oh. cutthroat was all about Genetics, although also the environment, as you say, alkaline water that they were adapted to. Alkaline water always creates good uh, weed growth, doesn't it, and good insect life. Now, is there any genetic coincidence about these giant fish of the Derwent and the Tyena, which is a little little tiny tributary stream of the Derwent? Is there any um, genetics, perhaps, uh, playing into their size, or is it just because they've got such a abundant food supply in the Derwent um, as sea runners?
3: Okay, well, the thing's is interesting because um, the Tyena has a huge head of fish, the fastwater creek, you know, your classic pool and riffle stream. It's not particularly big. Um, it's got a huge head of uh, mainly browns but also rainbow trout. Uh, um, but it does have this weird thing going on where it just produces the odd big fish continually all year. I used to work at salmon ponds and three or four times a year people would come in to have a fish um, officially weighed and those fish nearly always tine a fish and they were nearly always in that sort of, you know, 14 to 20 pound bracket. Um, and so... My guess is that there's a genetic component there's a nearby river too called the Styx it's famous for its big fish and these big fish in both rivers behave very similarly to fish that are native to England in the in the rivers that our trout were originally sourced from and so you know within these rivers in England you've got rivers that fish that stay in the river, fish that utilize little little habitats, you've got fish that, you know, run out to sea, you've got fish that just grow big and black. And there's great descriptions of these big black fish that um, um reputedly almost uncatchable. Um and it's exactly what we see in the trainer. So my guess is that we're looking at a genetic factor big time. I'll give you another example, Scott, of of um how genetics work. So in um, British Columbia in Canada, they have some giant rivers like the, the Columbia River, and then the headwaters of the Columbia have these big tributaries like um, and on the tributaries are these giant lakes i 'm talking lakes in steep river valleys, so they 're narrow, but they can be hundreds of literally hundreds of kilometers long, a couple of them like Arrow Lake and Lake Kootenai. now they 're also running up historically through these rivers you have big runs of sockeye salmon. Now some of the sockeye salmon run to the sea, most of them do, and they come back as fish in that sort of, I guess, seven pound bracket, anywhere between four and seven pounds.
4: But a whole
3: heap of the sockeye salmon in these rivers don't run to sea at all. They spend their entire lives in the river. And the Progeny of those fish never run to sea. They're genetically predisposed just to stay in those lakes. And they're called um, kokanee salmon. Mm. And they're they're relatively small, like a pound maybe, a little bit bigger. Um, And they feed, anyway, the the resident kokanee salmon feed in these lakes on um, little shrimps and plankton. So you're looking at daphnia and um, coca pods and things like that. Also in these lakes are rainbow trout. And the rainbow trout, um, their main food source is in fact the kokanee salmon. So to be able to get big enough to feed on a kokanee salmon with sort of average three quarters of a pound, you've got to be a big fish. And you've got to be able to get to that size really, really fast. So what happens is that they have really long gill rakers These fish, they can feed really quickly on the plankton, so they get to a size of about four or five pound very quickly. They mature late because as soon as a trout matures, it sort of, basically it stops growing. If there's any sort of competition in a lake, it will stop growing. So all the the fish that are genetically predisposed to grow big don't have first spawning in their second or third year. They often have their first spawning in their fourth or fifth year. These fish do that. Anyway, they eventually get to a size where they can just hammer these kokanee salmon. And it's an amazing thing to see. You'll be out in Kokanee Lake and you'll see an area in the evening because the the plankton come to the surface in in low light. In the evening, you'll see all the plankton come to the surface and you can recognise where it is because there's kokanee salmon seeding on it. So you've just got shimmering fish on the surface of the water an area about as big as a football field. And then screaming through these big shimmering masses of kokanee salmon are these giant rainbow trout, and they're just hammering the the kokanee. And when I say giant, they're typically in that 20 to 30-pound bracket. Wow. They're amazing, and they're called Gerard rainbows. Now, the Gerard rainbows don't get to that sort of typical 20 to 30-pound in any environment doesn't have this big supply of kokanee salmon to feed on but the genetic trait is so strong that they will still grow bigger than any other rainbow trout if they transferred from their home lake to pretty much any other lake they might not grow to 30 pounds but if you know if you jammed them in great lake they would be bigger than <laughs> right. um any of the current rainbow trout
2: in there sort of thing yeah it's amazing we're speaking with greg french about uh, Salmonids, the the fish that he he loves in Tasmania, it's one of the world's great wild trout fisheries, and of course he's done a lot of work to protect it and save it for for all, um, particularly the the Western Lakes Wilderness Area. Uh, of course, you've got lakes up there like, and there's a difference between a wild giant trout too. We're not even going to talk about those ones that are raised in stew ponds and given steroids and fed on on you know pellets and and high protein to to make them into these giant slobby sort of fat sumo wrestlers of fish that they put into the into the waterways in england for people to say oh, i caught a, a 10 pound or a 20 pound fish we're talking about ones that have grown in the wild and and uh, lakes up in the western lakes like it's called lunker lake for a reason and there are lots of those tarns where there might be one or two uh they've been feeding on the galaxids and and uh, mayflies and every everything else that's theirs to eat and and literally You'll swear to God, a, a log has started to move off the bottom. Um, they're very hard to catch sometimes, uh, and if you do, they're very hard to stop because you'll need a fine tippet to fool them. And then, when and the water's very clear, and then when you do get them on, they take you around every stick, every log. Uh, <laughs> you know, so to get one of those fish uh, up around twenty pound in those lakes is almost I- Im- impossible. But you see them, don't you? And when you do see one, you think maybe I should get out of the water. <laughs>
3: They are, big. Um the research from my, from my latest book, um, Wild Heart of Tasmania, which is um, about the Western Lakes trout fishery. Um, I interviewed quite a few people, and one of the people I interviewed was Greg Nilsson, who's a caretaker of the Tillons and Lakefield huts. Um, and we were sitting in his hut out Lake Lakefield, and we were talking about big fish. And he was saying to me, you know, out here in the Western Lakes, you, you find your trophy lakes, and we discussed them. he had a big map on the wall, and I was saying, you know, I like this one, and I like that one. It turned out he knows all the lakes I know. Um, and then but he was, he was saying, you know, like people always talk about catching 10-pound fish in the Western Lakes, and uh, he believed that most of those are exaggerations because he's been fishing out there since the 1960s, and he said his group of friends who... Have, who they're all excellent fishermen, I've got to say, um, and who have fished many, many weeks every year over, golly, it must be like 50 years now. Um, they can count the genuine 10 pound plus fish on the fingers of their hand. He went over to the mantelpiece and he brought me back a stack of photos um, and he had prints of all the giant fish that they've caught in the time that they're out there. Some of these fish are magnificent, you know, 16-pounders. Some of them are sort of locally famous in Tasmania. There's um, you know, that fish that Cliff Turner gaffed and took down to <laughs> Noel Jetson to have mounted, and Noel turned it over and said, well, that's a good fish, Cliff, but I can see the gaff mark on it. <laughs> Why do you want me to mount a fish that you gaffed? And he goes, Well, it's the biggest fish I've
4: ever gaffed.
3: Of you <laughs> so,
2: want to mount it. I was it thinking, Well, how. maybe he, he used a gaff instead of a net and caught it on a rod and line, but he actually just poached it, caught it, it caught it illegally.
3: Torch, torch, yeah, torch. I used to shoot them, I used to net them. Um, but yeah, this is a bygone era, and um, I've I met all these guys, and they're fantastic fellas.
2: And yeah. I remember and, reading uh, Reg Cabals' book. He was. Uh, Uh, a big uh, fly fisherman and uh, a pretty rough and ready sort of character out of Launceston who'd go up there and on an old motorbike and live live up in the western lakes and chase fish and he he said he'd be in the in the hut or in in the tent and there'd be rolling thunder and lightning across the hills and he said there were no storms about it was the what did he call them the um rifle and light brigade because they would go up with rifles and, and spotlights and shoot the the giant fish of the Western Lakes.
3: Yeah, no, it was true. And then that didn't really change until the you know that, those times it was unallocated Crown land, and then they created the Central Plateau Protected Area in 1978, um, and they installed a ranger, um, Val Dell, and Val took it upon himself to clean up all that. Um, sort of American behaviour. Um, and it's at work, that's why we've got... The and it's
2: all today. its all in your new book. It's called Wild Heart of Tasmania. That is a, a cracking read about uh, a wild place and some wild people. Uh, now it's, it's a very accessible place and, of course, uh, you're hoping to keep it that way without privatisation, which is certainly still, sadly, on the cards. Just getting back to the Derwent and the Tyena and, and these giant fish yeah. that come out of there. Of course, Rob Paxavanis on this program... Uh, caught one twenty-two pound and, and absolutely was twenty-two pound. He's a very honest bloke uh, up in the Derwent, actually near the near the mouth of the Tyena, So that that was fair enough. Um, they are there. They they are there. I, I remember fishing uh, near the bridge um, near the the Raspberry Farm there at uh, Westerway, and I was catching some lo- lovely little fish around the pound, two pound mark, and all of a sudden, just on dusk, something took the the dry. It came out from an old bit of tin, actually, that was stuck on the side of the river, and it just took off. And it was like being tied to a submarine or something. You just couldn't stop it. You know, I went up, and it's a hard river to wade. It's so so slippery with that uh, salmon farm upstream that puts all that muck into it. You know, the nutrient and uh, uh, just unstoppable, mate. I don't know how big it was. It, it must have been. Well, you know, you, you know when you've got a big fish, and it's just like there's none of this frantic running. It's just this bulldozing. Unstoppable movement upstream until uh, eventually just go slack,
3: yeah well, there's certainly been a number of old twenty genuine twenty pounds fish taken out of and there's big fish taken out of the every year, and when I say big fish in that sort of you know fifteen pound plus bracket so they're definitely there they're not they're not the average fish by any stretch, but they' most of our rivers here in Tasmania are bigger rivers. Do have the odd big fish in them, even even rivers that are not famous for producing big fish. You'll just be wandering up somewhere like, say, the World River down the tributary of the Huon, and you know, catching little rainbows. You've been there with me, Scott. We've been a great time Oh yeah, before.
2: it's beautiful. Um, yeah, tannin stained, a gorgeous forest. Yeah.
3: Yeah, um, but and then you'll get the tail out of a pool, and there'll be you know one or two giant brown trout just tailing in, in the <laughs> in the outflow of a pool, and you've yeah, maybe you've fished that river six or seven times this season and you're not seen anything like it, and then suddenly there's two of them side by side in the yeah. middle of summer.
2: Yeah, That's what they're there for. It's fantastic. And, and all of those streams where they can run to the sea, you would think um, maybe sea trout, although also ones that are, are nighttime cannibals, I, I don't know, You know those giant fish with the giant kite and the huge mouth. I mean, they can swallow anything, can't they?
3: Well, they do, mate feed on lamprey. lamprey. For people who don't know what a lamprey is, it's uh, an ancient fish. It's a cartilage in the fish, so more like a shark than a normal fish. that doesn't have proper bones. It's got a sucky mouth. And they live in our rivers. They um, hatch in around, around June, July, and then they migrate down to the ocean. as tiny little fish. The moment they hit the ocean, they look for a host fish. They latch onto its side and they suck it dry. And then they keep, you know, falling off their host once the fish dies and finding a new host until they get to, well, I don't know, sort of, you know, 500, 600 millimetres long, about, you know, as big as a small eel. And then they run back up our rivers and then they spawn and die. Um, But there are huge runs of lampreys up most of the rivers, particularly the ones in the Dermot, the Tyena, my little creek here that runs past my house. and when these lampreys die, or they're a big animal. When they die, they often take ages to fully die. They'll be half dead for weeks at a time, and they drift back in the current, and they end up at the mouth of the tributary creek, either in the estuary or, say, in the duet at the mouth of the Taina. And there are big brown trout that just specialise in feeding on these things. And they are genuinely big. I go down to the mouth of Sorrell Creek um, in, in October, November, and you can see these big ten-pound plus trout wrestling with lampreys. And when you land one, they puke all the lampreys up, and some of them are yes, look like pretty much like a lamprey, but others have been dead for weeks, and they just like hoove it up all the rotting muck and oh, dead lampreys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, like,
2: there'd be people not having breakfast
3: feed feeding on them
2: <laughs> oh, there'd be people who won't be eating breakfast now well there's a reason there's a reason why it's the land of the giants but this uh, so far unconfirmed report of a 39 pounder out of the Tyena a little tributary of the and it uh, gets the old pulse racing, uh, particularly if it's caught <laughs> in legitimate met- methods. Hey, tight lines, Greg French. It's always great to talk fishing with you. And uh, people, if they want a good read, it's a butte book, The Wild Heart of Tasmania, uh, a look at the Western Lakes and, and how they've been saved for, for all of us, really. It's one of the great wild walking fisheries, although there is the threat, of course, of that helicopter fishing that is currently sitting with our federal government who uh, hold the fate of that place in the, I- its hands. Thanks for joining us. Always pleasure. The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio.
1: Here comes Stinker
3: with his fishing tips. Some hot advice for your fishing trip.
4: Where to find him? What's the bait? Are you catching any, mate?
2: Good morning, Stinker. Hey, guys, (laughs) Scott. exciting times with the school holidays and all the kids looking for something to do. What about taking them fishing?
4: Oh, that's, that's the answer. That's the answer. Or take them down on the beach. It all depends how old they are, of course. But if they're little tots, take them down the beach, put a uh, sun cream on their nose, put a hat on their head, give them a shovel, and then tell them to dig a hole. Well. There you go. There's half a day gone already. <laughs> and then if they're really stuffed what to do in the other half, tell them to fill it in. And then there's a day. There's a day on the beach.
2: <laughs> Although, I make sure they fill it in because when you go back to Kitty's Corner, when you're allowed to launch your boat off the beach again, sometimes they're like you know, the, the beaches of Normandy. They're like tank traps.
4: <laughs> oh, it's happened to me. You know, I, I went all used to fish for Mulloway. I don't do that anymore. But when I did, I'd come back home after dark and there'd be a bunch of kids during the day who had um, dug a hole like, you know, halfway to China and I'm driving along the beach and then come boom! My, <laughs> oh, my truck disappears down this almighty hole. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, just a, question, a bit of advice for kids those holidays. Fill in the hole.
2: <laughs> Fill in the hole. Hey, you've got your uh, teenage grandson with you. Young
4: Archie. Yeah, Archie. Archie's, here. Archie's a real terrific... He's a terrific kid, Archie. And um, he's keen to learn anything, uh, which is great. Oh, you know, I mean, that's what, what it's all about, really. And so I had the opportunity earlier in the week to put him in these guys. He's come down from Brisbane. And, and like, in Brisbane, there's not much, you know. I'm, I'm not real keen up there. But anyway, down here in Port Stevens, particularly around Single Bay, oh, it's a whole new world. So I got him in the bigger boat and out we went. Um, and I had a couple of um, hand lines in there with a, a lure on the back. So I tossed them out and I said, now, all you've got to do is hang on to that, mate. And he said, what's going to happen? And while he said happen, the line <laughs> went as tight as a string and he said, what? He said, there's something on the end. I said, well, it's probably a fish. And so he he had no idea. He's never done this before. Well, he was so excited. And so he, at Taylor, that's what they were. And the Taylor been there, I reckon, eight weeks. I reckon there'd been a school of Taylor in the same spot. It's not a big school because you know when you're going to go into the school and you know when you're going to come out of it. But, I mean, we caught, I think, six, which is plenty. We could have got a heap more. But um, he caught three or four, um, and then we put the, I said, that's enough, mate, You know, wind up your line. And he, he was quite happy with that. He said, yeah, that's great, thank you. You know, he said that was a lot of fun. But then what happened, we, um, we went out around in front of the lighthouse at Fingal, and was, I never realised at this time there were so many whales to be seen. There were whales everywhere, they're coming south, and I reckon I saw fifteen whales, I suppose, and and they were coming out of the water and I didn't expect to see any. I don't know when they turn around, but it seems like they're on their way home. Uh,
2: what did Archie think of that, John?
4: Oh, yeah, well, he couldn't believe it, but that wasn't the end of it anyway. He, he got us he had a one of those phone things with him, and he took all the photos. And and that was all good. And then, and I don't encourage this, but we, I was going real slow in calm water, and he decided to sit on the nose of the boat and dangle his legs over the side, over the front <laughs> of the boat. Well, I don't encourage that, but I'm thinking, look, it's safe. It was safe and uh, and I'm just going real slow, and we're just talking and everything. And then a a, a dolphin come up, and I don't know whether he's, it hit him on the foot or not. But a jolly well near did. Well, he lifted his feet up. He thought a shark had got him. And he, he rolled back into the boat. And he said, he said that thing come up under my feet. And they went, oh, it was beautiful. These dolphins, they're what's called common dolphin. Not a bottlenose dolphin that's inside Port Stevens, but a common dolphin. He's got a bit of a yellow tummy. And he's smaller than the other one. But there's heaps and heaps of them. And they're real cheeky. They're cheeky things and they come right
2: up to you, and, oh, they're beautiful creatures. Oh, that's great, and he, he was happy that it wasn't one of the resident great whites. We're yeah. talking with yeah. Stinker about about the kids, and Stinker, fishing and, and kids, what are some of your tips? Because that's a such an adventurous trip for young Archie. You'll remember that, and it was action, it was fun, there were whales, there were dolphins, you know, a really great day out, something to do. Lots, lots of fun. I guess it's pretty thrilling in that little tiny boat, too, out at the sea. But what about giving them something to do on the wharf or something? Have you tried that?
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I just before I leave the, my fishing uh, adventure, we went right into the um, jaws of the uh, King Tommy in front of the lighthouse, and in there, poking his head up and stared straight at us, was the big, the big bull seal. And he's there and Fed Income I've been this bull seal's been there for a long time. And I think it's the same one that he just sort of cruises up and down between Rocky Point and Fingal, And if you catch a fish anywhere near him, get it out of the water quick because this this seal just jumps on it and it'll take all the fish off your line. As long as you keep catching them, he'll keep stealing them. Oh, wow. And then of course and then the, um, on the rocks above us were the sea eagles, uh, and they were just keeping an eye on us. So, yeah, that, it, it just rounded See, up. See, you turned it on. Fit.
2: Nature turned it on for him. That, that's, a, that's a memorable trip, isn't it? Yes. Young Archie will be hooked, hooked for life. And uh, yes. you, you used to try to amuse the school kids with fishing too, didn't you? You came up with some novel competitions, I believe.
4: Oh, God. <laughs> well, I did. See, I try and get kids of fishing any way I can, um, you know, it's such a, probably, well, it is, in my opinion, the best recreation for a family. I mean, from the oldest to the youngest member of your family, you can fish at some level. You don't have to be a world champion. You don't have to catch big fish. It's just basically a time that you can spend together um, with a single purpose Uh, out in the environment and just enjoy each other's company. I mean, it's not real, you know, complicated. But as you you mentioned, when I was was at school, when I was teaching at school, I used to have Wednesday afternoon sport. One of the sports that the kids could select was fishing. And there's a lot of kids that don't want to be involved in football or any of those contact sports or even those, you know, They just want to sort of hang out and have a good time. And that's fine by me. I mean, any of those leisure activities are, look, they're equally as important as as any of those competitive sports. But I went one step further with this fishing on Wednesday afternoons, and we had an inner school sport with Gilgandra High School. I um, and a friend of mine, Dennis Main, who was the sportsmaster at Gilgandra High School and I was a sportsmaster at Nelson Bay High School I said let's have an inter-school fishing competition along with everything else. Yeah, We'd we'd play each other in just about everything called bush to beach. Once a year we would, uh, one year we'd travel to Gilgandra, the next year they'd travel to us. Anyway they said righto, let's have a fishing competition I don't think anyone else has ever done this but anyway so we went out, we go to Gilgandra, and they said, well, where are we going to catch fish out here? Because I had a team and a captain, you know, you know and the captain of the
2: fishing team.
4: <laughs> and uh, we all sat in a big circle around a dam with a bit of cotton, you know, and <laughs> caught crayfish. Oh, then,
2: Yabby, you beauty. Yeah, yeah, and that would have been great fun. And you'd get a good oh, feed out of that too.
4: Well, it was fun. Fantastic, you know, and everyone had put their um, crayfish in a bucket and then you'd have a look and see who had the most. We never ever could figure it out, so we called it a draw. (laughs) We weren't going to count them. Anyway, it's a draw. Okay, everyone's happy with that. And then, of course, Gilgandra come to um, Nielsen Bay. Well, though they haven't done any fishing in salt water before, but that doesn't matter. We gave everybody a hand line and we went down to the local wharf at, um, at the Nelson Bay Co-op down on the waterfront, and we gave everybody a fish in line, and we put some bait, and, we, and I had a whistle. I blew the whistle. I said, right, start. <laughs> Lower your line. <laughs> so they all lost their line, and the, and the way that we worked it out was whoever caught a fish would lay it on the concrete jetty and then with a, a stick, a bit of chalk, We'd measure the length of the fish, then throw the fish back in the water. And then the next fish that was caught would be added on to that until we ended up with one team, um, Nelson Bay, caught 2.2 metres of fish. <laughs> <We> add it <laughs> up. You know, that might have been 10 fish. And then even Tiddler's counted for something. Yeah. Um, but then Gilgandra, who we weren't expecting to do catch anything, they caught um Another uh, four or five centimetres longer. Oh wow! Our, well, our mob were they only had five minutes to go before the whistle blew, and really, well, yeah, there was a fair bit of pressure on. Anyway, one bloke caught an eel. Well, Nelson Bay, Yahoo! We we put the eel on the end of the line to find out who was going to be the winner, but we couldn't keep the it wouldn't keep the eel, eel wouldn't stay still. <laughs> and so we couldn't meet it. So uh, when the whistle blew, I said, It's another draw. <laughs>
2: it's a draw. Oh, what a <laughs> good story. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to catch long, thin fish. Hey, Stinker, yes. tight lines, mate. Always great to catch up with you. And it really whets our appetite for fishing uh, with the kids during the school holes. <laughs> Harry, Scott. The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. ABC Radio, it's the big fish with Scott Levi. If you drive between Sydney and Newcastle, you'd know what a huge system the Tugra Lakes system is. And most people just fish around the entrance. It's great fun there. It's an area around the bridge and and down to the entrance of the entrance that's lovely sand flats. The water looks blue and inviting. Lots of flathead, lots of whiting, lots of brim, you name it. Estuary perch. Uh, trevally you'll catch uh, beautiful blackfish uh, beautiful uh, ludric through the winter months you'll catch anything there Um, but the rest of that expansive water is a bit of a mystery to most of us there's so much water and uh, it's a bit featureless in some places a very shallow system it's not a lake they're coastal lagoons rob longney at tookley there knows every blade of seagrass good morning rob good morning how are you this morning i'm very well rob it is a daunting waterway what sort of fish can you catch away from those well-known spots like the entrance?
0: Uh, mate, we've got everything up here. It's just a matter of just uh, getting out and exploring, really. It's, um up the top end here. We fish quite a bit up the top uh, it's, it's because the lake's got th- three parts to it. You've got like, what we call the Tugra Lake, or the main lake where around the entrance, and then then we've got the middle part, which we call the Tugger Lake, and then we go through the fish highway there at Budgeboy into the Mummora Lake. So you've got, you've got three sections. So after the spawn, a lot of the, lot of the brim move up to the back, so a lot of the guys will fish at the top end of the lake. And where the flatty, when they come in off the spawn, they like to sit down where, where the clean water is still, around the mouth of the entrance or just inside the entrance. And that's why the flatty fishing is always so good. And um, and we have really good brim fishing here. It's probably one of the best brim fisheries in the country, to tell you the truth.
2: Yeah, but they're, they're wily and smart, and, and it's really good that you understand their movement. So they, they move up from, they go out to the sea or around the entrance to spawn, uh, and then what that the, they do? They move up through Tugra Lake and into Budgie Woy and, and Lake Munmora.
0: Yes, they um, they go back to all their haunts. It's, it's funny that uh, certain fish know, know exactly where the, where they want to go. So um, The biggest fish will go back, to, because brim are a very territori- territorial fish as well. They're very similar to bass. That's why they say bass fishing and brim fishing go hand in hand. So uh, yeah, so it's pretty much once you learn the areas where, where where a lot of the brim sit around or congregate around, it's just a matter of just working out uh, what what's going on on the day.
2: And they love the snags, like the bass. It's 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 fantastic. Um, after all the rain we had, obviously, obviously things are settling down. But to be up one of the tributaries of the Tugger Lake system and uh, one minute hit a, a beautiful bass or estuary perch on the surface fly lure, and then the next minute get walloped by a, a thumping big brim. Um, they, they do share the uh, habitat, don't they?
0: Oh, yeah, especially up around the Wyong River. Any of the guys, if you show up in the Wyong River, throwing in the snags here, chasing your EPs. The, the brim are always mixed amongst them, so yeah, you've always got a good chance of getting the two species there. But, um, yeah, the, the old brims seem to like to hang with the EPs. Uh, is, I don't know what, what it is. It's just whether they're distant cousins or what, but well, they've just got the same uh, hunting characteristics.
2: Yeah, I think so. They they like the same habitat, and and the good thing is, I guess I know know that the waterway is shared with um commercial fishers and recreational fishers. But those fish that live in the snags, uh, they don't don't really end up in the nets too much, I guess.
0: No, they're they're pretty smart fish when they come off the spawn, mate. They just go straight back to their, their little hidey holes.
2: Yeah, for sure, and and then feed up on whatever comes their way. Lots of prawns. I mean, the place is just full of prawns too. That it's an absolute fish factory. What about the elusive whiting? There have been a bit, uh, a lot of water between the whiting over the last few years with this, uh, the big rains. Uh, there have been a lot of them on the beaches but uh, up in the estuaries they've been a bit scarce. Will they come back this year do you think?
0: Yeah it's been been a bit of a funny season for the whiting it's, you know, a lot of people know that I, I actually target whiting quite a bit and um, I've been fishing majority all year along the beach lines and they've been very few and far between, a bit, bit scarce but uh, we're, we're just starting to get get a few now around the mouth of the entrance so it's slowly coming back in. Like I said, we've had a lot of rain this year, so uh, these next few weeks we've got a lot of settled weather. So we should start seeing the, the whiting move back in in good good numbers.
2: And of course, you're a, a firm advocate for the the live worms, aren't you? With the whiting, they're they're pretty finicky. They they do love a, a blood worm or a beach worm or a tube worm.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, worms are always going to be be the be the thing that that people want and. Our nippers work just as well. Uh, Peel prawn works just as good. Squid soaked in milk, get them nice and soft. It works really good. Then you've got us fellows who love catching them on lures, especially on top water. They love a top water lure presented to them.
2: Yeah. What about in, in the lake? Uh, are there places where you can tangle with whiting and brim on the top water? Because... Obviously, and the funny thing, I've done a lot of that. It's it's so addictive. You're right, walking the dog, or bent back minnows, or whatever you're using, or flies too. Um, the, the whiting really like that constant movement, and the brim loved the pause. So you've got to work out what sort of take it was, and they'll often come back two or three times.
0: Oh, that's it. Yeah, with whiting, you've got to, you've got to keep it moving. You know, the moment you stop, and spook them, they won't they won't come back. Where your brim are totally different. You can couple little little jerks here and there, stop it, and of course brim's such a curious fish. Nine times out of ten, pluck. When the water temp starts to warm up, right? Um, it's, it's actually, with a lot of us guys, we've already been catching them on top water now. Uh, we had a bit of a bit of a bite through the winter period on top water, so they go through. When, when I find when we get a little bit of settled weather, the top water bite seems to come on, even even through the winter. So we your sugar pens and. And uh, little little thirty-five mil, forty mil cicadas work really well as also. They're probably one of the, our favourites up in the rivers when we're chasing the rim.
2: Yeah, you're making my arm twitch. Everyone knows what I'm talking about if you've ever tried that style of of fishing. Will that work throughout the system? Because it's a it would be a system uh, quite suited to to topwater fishing. It's quite shallow, isn't it?
0: Yeah. When when we get a lot of the prawns on the move and prawn season's just. We're getting a lot of prawns starting to come into the lake now, so um, I'm about to head out next week. Just got all the boat ready to go. Uh, so I'll be be fishing a lot of the flats because a lot of, lot of the prawns will be moving up onto the flats early. And uh, so top water is, is, is a good thing to use uh, up on the, on the flats early. In the morning, as soon as I see those prawns skipping around, chuck a top water, and uh, nine times out of ten, you'll find a brim cruising along not far behind the prawns.
2: Yeah, well, let's hope we get a good, good whiting season this year because the brim have been great. I think the big rains really have brought some, uh, did bring some stonker brim out of the, the upper reaches of all the estuaries um, and obviously coming down to spawn and then going back there. But the whiting have been a bit... And it's amazing, isn't it, when that walking the dog lure gets close to the boat and a whiting's on it, you actually hear them sucking at it. It can be a really loud sound like pulling the plug on the drain in the sink or something—it's it's, it's bizarre—and and you see how those prawns acting that sandy estuary, don't you? They they dig into the sand, and and the whiting probably get around with their downturned mouth and their suction feeding, and 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 root them out, and then, and then they spook them, and up they go to the top, and then they skid along the top to try to escape, and that's what you're trying to replicate.
0: Like I said, once the prawns start running, the flatties are starting to come on. A lot of the boys will go clone prawns. Um, Anything that's that's the shape of a prawn, any type of prawn lure, any type of prawn plastic, uh, is always going to bring Mr. Brim and Whiting undone, especially like once those prawns really start coming in numbers. Yeah, prawn lures will, will just kill it all day long.
2: And all night long too.
0: Yep, even night time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, especially down under the bridge down there at the entrance. Get, get those lights on, on, the light on the water there, just yeah, throw those little prawn lures down by the pylons there. Right? Pull a stack of Brim and Whiting all, all, all night long there.
2: Then when a big flathead... Uh, comes charging off the bottom and does a big somersault, taking one of those surface lures. You you'll uh, remember it forever.
0: Oh, that's it, mate. We call this an edge lake. So if you if you're in a kayak, you're sticking to edges, fishing the edge of weed beds, uh, sandy sandy areas with with drop offs and stuff. You can't go wrong.
2: It's surprising how the flathead will line up when there's a little bit of a uh, a depth change.
0: It, that's it. It's it's one of these lakes. like I said, it's a very underestimated lake. Uh, a lot of people think because it's shallow and because we don't get the, the mouth closed up all the time, we don't we don't get as many fish in it. Mate, there is a stack of fish in here. The brim are, are a good size. Some we've got caught them up to 50 centimetres in this lake. So there is some some good good uh, solid brim. Always get good solid brim between 30 and 38 centimetres. We've got plenty of that that size fish in the system. Flatties, sometimes they're not really big, 50s, 50, 50 55s, but you might come across the occasional 80, 90, fishing around, around the mouth of the entrance. So we've got a little bit of everything. And then you've got your whiting to keep you entertained as well. And then as you move up around the bridges and stuff where all the herring go, um, especially Tootley Bridge, you'll find all the kids there fishing for herring, catching live herring for for their uh, their flatty fishing, we'll out chasing potty mullets. So yeah, we've got a bit of everything to, to do here to keep, your, keep you entertained. Oh,
2: nope. Call to Tookley, say good day to Rob Longney. There. Tight lines, mate. Thanks for that uh, update on Tugra Lakes.
0: No worries. Thanks, mate. Get out of it. see seagulls.
2: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.
1: You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listener.